So we've come to um, chapter two of this letter, uh, brothers and sisters, and as we've been going through chapter one, we've been saying, haven't we, that that the theme of this book is faith that works, or faith that has some uh, substance to it, faith that has evidence that sort of is shown in our lives. But we've also uh, said, haven't we, over these last few weeks that James deals with a lot of things in this book which are difficult. They're difficult for us to hear as Christians. Uh, We have to wrestle through them. And he does that because if we remember the context, James is writing to Jewish Christians and they were living in Jerusalem. Uh, James was their pastor and they were persecuted and sort of scattered into the surrounding regions, Judea and uh, Samaria. And uh, when they got there, they were financially quite poor. They were socially isolated. They continued to get persecuted. And unfortunately, they allowed the temptation of worldliness to come into their lives as individuals and in their churches. And so James is wanting to deal with that as he's going through this letter. And so he's going to say some pretty difficult things. So in chapter 1, we've seen him talk about trials. We've seen him talk about money. We've seen him talk about sin. And in chapter 2, it's going to be the same. This week, we're going to be talking about faith that works to treat people properly. And next week, we'll talk about faith that's evidenced in works. And you'll see as we go through that there's some difficult things to receive and wrestle with. And so that's why, as we come to verse 1 in our text today, it's a bit like an oasis, really. An oasis for a preacher, but also for those who are hearing the word, because there's some really encouraging words in this first verse. James says there, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Now notice he says there that he doesn't want these believers to hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, which means that he assumes that they do hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to hold this faith? Well, notice he doesn't say faith in Jesus Christ. He says says the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this means basically what Jesus believed to hold what Jesus believed when he lived. And I think when you look at the Gospels, you can quite clearly see that Jesus believed he was the creator. He believed that man was a sinner and that man needed to be redeemed. He believed that he was the means by which they get saved and that he was going to come back to this world and rule forever and ever. And you see, the thing is, when we become believers, when we put our faith in Jesus and we're born again, we are in a sense given that same faith that Jesus had. We take on the faith that he is creator. We agree with him about man, that man is a sinner and needs to be redeemed and that he is the way that they're redeemed and that he will come back and rule forever and ever. Now this is important. It's important because what James is doing, even in this first verse... Remember the context, these Jewish believers, they're being tempted with worldliness to go back to the world. James is pointing them in this verse back 
to the fact that they belong to Jesus, because he says, my brethren, and that they hold the same faith as Jesus Christ. And in that, he is showing them that with all these things that they're going to go through in this letter, Jesus is the key to dealing with them. Knowing that you belong to him. Knowing that you have the same faith as Christ. James has been very Jesus-centered in his pastoral ministry here. He is, in a sense, answering many of his critics. James has had a very unfair criticism over the last 2,000 years. Many people think he's not very Christian in his writing because he doesn't mention the name of Jesus that much. But I completely reject that because here he's pointing these people back to Jesus. Pointing them back to the fact that they belong to him and they have the same faith as him. And the same spirit that's speaking through James wants to say the same thing to you this morning. Because as we go through this book, brothers and sisters, I really believe that God is going to deal with us. He's going to speak to us about things that we don't even know, difficult things. And it's at that point when you're convicted that the devil can come in and say to you, you're not really a Christian. Don't repent. Nothing's going to change. And it's at that point you need to remember that you belong to Jesus and you believe the same thing as him. So when you're in that place, you feel convicted by what we're reading, the devil is trying to condemn you. Remember, Lord, I belong to you. You've died for me. I believe that you're the creator. I believe that you're the means of salvation and that you are going to rule one day on this earth. And in that, the Spirit will encourage you that Jesus is for you, that he will finish the work that he started in you, and in that you'll have the freedom to repent and receive that change that only he can bring. Just remember that, because I really feel that the Spirit wants to say that this morning. Remember that you belong to Jesus, that you have the same faith as him. So he goes on in verse 1, and he says that he doesn't want them to hold this faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. Now, what does that word partiality mean? Well, it describes a situation where you've got two people, and, and one of them is making a judgment about the other person. And they make a judgment about the other person based upon that person's external appearance only and not based about anything that's in that person's heart. A good example of that may be maybe a few weeks ago when I got up here uh, having sort of shaved my head and gave the announcements that I made. Maybe some of you at that time were thinking, what on earth is Adam doing? Does he want to look more like John Brown? Does he want to look 10 years younger? Which is what people said to me. But maybe you didn't consider the fact that in my heart, I'm just anxious about going bold. <laughs> That's a funny example, but it does show how partiality works. You make a judgment about someone based upon their external appearance, and you don't consider anything about what's going on in their heart. And that James does not want these people to have that quality in their character. 
So he goes on in verses 2 to 4 to kind of expand this a bit more. And he brings out this, uh, I would say, this hypothetical situation that he's using to illustrate a real temptation that they're going through. And so he talks about there, about this idea that they're gathered together in their assembly, and the word for assembly there means synagogue. So that, again, shows us that he's writing to Jewish Christians. And so they're in their assembly, and these two men come into the doors. One of them's got gold rings on, has got fine clothes on, is obviously rich. There's another man that comes in with filthy clothes and is poor. And these guys in their assembly, they begin giving attention to the rich man, and they say, you sit here in a good place, and they say to the poor man, you stand there. They didn't even want to allow him to sit. Or if he does sit, they say, sit here at my footstool. And he then goes on in verse 4 to say, look, if you do that, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil faults? Now, to understand this situation that James is describing, we have to think about two things. The first thing is the temptation that these Jewish Christians were going through. Again, remember the context. These guys were probably part of the group that got saved at Pentecost. And you remember in Acts chapter 2, they gave all their possessions away into a common purse. And they did that because they thought Jesus was going to come back at any time. So they thought, well, we don't need this stuff anymore. Jesus is going to come back, and so let's just give it away. But of course, Jesus didn't come back, and what ended up happening is many of these Jewish Christians became very, very poor. And so they were scattered out into these regions, poor and socially isolated. And I think, honestly, what happened to them is they started hanging around with people that had quite a lot of money, rich Jewish people. And so these people would come into the synagogue and they would pay attention to these Jewish rich people because, let's face it, they had something that they needed. They had money, money that could buy them food or get them clothing. I think we can understand that that temptation is a valid temptation. I mean, if you're in a place where you're poor, you've got nothing, you've got no money, you've got no food, maybe nowhere to live, you're going to be tempted to get some money by whatever means you can. But even though that's a valid temptation which these believers were going through, it doesn't mean that it's right. It doesn't mean that they should follow through with that temptation and do what is being described here. Now, to understand why it's wrong, why is it wrong to show partiality, we have to understand partiality in terms of redemptive history. When God created the world, brothers and sisters, he created the world without partiality. He created Adam and Eve equal in the eyes of God. They had different roles, but God wanted a humanity to go out into the world where people would not judge each other and they would not show partiality. People would not take advantage of each other. But of course, what happened? Sin came into the world. And what's the first situation we see after that? We see the situation of Cain and Abel. You remember that situation? Abel brought an acceptable sacrifice to God. Cain did not. Cain became jealous of his brother. 
He made all sorts of judgments about Abel, about his external appearance, without considering Abel's heart. And what did he do? He murdered him in cold blood. And that's been the story of humanity ever since. Race after race, making unfair judgments about the other. People taking advantage of each other. A world full of partiality. And it's because of sin. That's why he says here, when you show partiality, you've become judges with evil thoughts. Because partiality, listen, comes from sin. Now I have to say that I've had this sin it really exposed to me in the last year as I've been out on the soup run. I mean, seriously, if you want to see whether you're tempted to partiality, come out with us on the soup run. When you go to the soup run, seriously, you go there and there are people there that don't look the same as you. They're not in the same circumstances as you. They're poor. They're on drugs. They're on alcohol. They're not very thankful that you're there sometimes. They're rude to you. There's sometimes fights, and you could be tempted to make judgments about them based upon that external appearance and not consider what's in their hearts. Maybe some of the other soup runners will say amen to that, but that's certainly something that I've experienced in the last year. And I'm sure all of you can think about circumstances in your life where sin has caused you to, to, to walk in partiality to someone else. But thank God he's not like us. God is not a God of partiality. We see that very clearly in Romans chapter 2, verse 11, where in terms of judgment of mankind, he says, therefore, there is no partiality with God. He doesn't show any partiality. We see it in the way that God dealt with David in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, what does it say there? It says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at the appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For listen, the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward, but the Lord looks at the heart. God does not show partiality to anyone. This is clearly, I think, shown in the life of Christ. Christ came. For uh, He said he came for those uh, who are sinners to lead them to repentance. Jesus came for the very people that are shown partiality in our world. For prostitutes, for the poor, for the lame, for lepers, for people who society have rejected because of their external circumstances. Jesus came for those people. Jesus showed no partiality. And you see, the thing is, brothers and sisters, the good news for us, if we are saved in here this morning, if we know the Lord, he wants to create that kind of character in us as well. Jesus has redeemed us so we can be people that show no partiality. That when we've got anyone in front of us, we can look past their external appearance look into their heart, see that they're sinners, see that they need to be saved and be redeemed and tell them the gospel. That's God's intention in making us people who have no partiality. And this is why, listen, in a Christian's life, if a Christian shows partiality, it's wrong because it goes against the very purposes of God. 
It goes against his gospel. If you show partiality, Jesus is going to be, I think, quenched in the spirit. Your witness is going to be quenched. Partiality, brothers and sisters, it goes against the purposes of God and is therefore wrong. And that is why he says in verse 1, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. It will hinder the work of God. He goes on in verses 5, 6, and 7 to give us a further three reasons why partiality in a Christian's heart is wrong. In verse 5, we're going to see that it's wrong because it goes against the calling of God. In verse 6, we're going to see it's wrong because it goes against the very lifestyle that God calls us to. And then in verse 7, we're going to see that it's wrong because it, it goes against the very name of Christ. So let's deal with each one of those. So in verse 5, he says the following. He says, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? And so in this verse, uh, again, James is grabbing their attention, and he's grabbing their attention in a very encouraging way. Look, he says, listen, my beloved brethren. (laughs) He's saying to these guys that are struggling with the temptation of worldliness, you're beloved, you're my brethren, you belong to the Lord, but I want you to listen. And then in verse 5, he basically makes the point and asks the question, has God not chosen the unlikely to be saved? to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. Uh, In this, James agrees with Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 29, where he he says the following, Paul, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise." And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So you see, Paul says the same thing. Paul says, like James does, that God has chosen the unlikely God has chosen the unlikely to be saved. Why? Well, because, because of what it says in verse 29 there. It says, because he doesn't want any flesh to glory in his presence. God wants to make it very clear through choosing the unlikely that there is nothing in this world, brothers and sisters, that can save mankind. There's nothing in this sinless world that can produce sinlessness. Only the work of God can do that. There's nothing in our wisdom, there's nothing in our might, there's nothing in our nobility that can save us. It can only be the work of God through Jesus at the cross, through the drawing work of the Spirit in people's lives. This is why he chooses the unlikely. He wants to show that reality in a very vivid way to the whole world. It's not that rich people can't get saved. It's not that clever people can't get saved or wise people. But what's true is it's not what they possess. 
in materialism or in their mind that saves them. It's only God. It's only Jesus that can save. Nothing of ourself can save us. This is the point he's making. And he's saying to them, look, guys, come on, let's be real. When you are tempted to show attention to a rich person and you, as it says there, dishonor the poor man or you show contempt to the poor man, let's, let's be realistic about this. Aren't you going against the very calling of God when you show your partiality? And he's saying it's obviously wrong. He then says in verse 6, Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts. And in this, he's bringing out this reality that for a large majority of rich people, if they're unsaved, they like their money. They want to hold on to their money. They want to do whatever it is to keep the money that they have in their bank accounts. Why is that? Well, it's because of what it says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, where it says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. People who are unsaved, people who've got a lot of money, they have this temptation to love their money. And it leads to all kind of evil. Evil that is, is, is expressed here when he says that, the, that they, oppress, they oppress people. They drag people into courts. That's evil. We see that all over the world, don't we? Rich people who want to hold on to their money. Corrupt governments wanting to oppress the poor so that they can keep money. Now, this is obviously against the very life that God calls us to as Christians. When we become Christians, whether we've got a lot of money, whether we've got a small amount of money, God wants us to be willing to say, you know what, Lord, the money that I have, it belongs to you. And I want to just see what you want to do with it. I want to pray, would you show me by your spirit how you want this money to be used to extend your kingdom? That's what we're all called to as Christians. And so James, in bringing this up here, he's saying, look, guys, when you give attention to these rich people that are not saved... You're going against the very call that God has given you financially in your life. And so therefore, showing partiality to them is wrong. It's absolutely wrong. And then probably most soberly, in verse 7, he says, Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? And so here, James is telling us that many of these people who were rich that they were giving their attention to, they weren't saved. They weren't born again. They were blaspheming, which means to speak evil of, the noble name by which you are called. And that noble name is obviously Jesus. This is a very good example, brothers and sisters, of what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, where Paul says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And so as I said, many of these Jewish Christians, they went into these areas, they started hanging out with these rich people, and the truth is they were corrupted. They were corrupted in their morals to the extent that they were happy to hang around with them and give attention to them even though they blasphemed the name of Jesus. I mean, think about that. That's really serious, isn't it? That you would be willing to hang around with someone 
to get what they have, even if they blaspheme the name of Jesus. And James is saying, come on, guys, let's get real. Seriously, do you really think your partiality is right if you're hanging around with people and giving attention to people that are blaspheming the name of Jesus? No, it's obviously wrong. Now, why is he giving these three punchy reasons why partiality is wrong here? He's already said that it's evil, that we become judges with evil thoughts. Why does he go on to give more reasons? Well, I think it's very simple. Uh, in verse 4, he's being very, I would say, general about why it's wrong, but he gets more specific in verses 5, 6, and 7. And this is what God does. When we have an issue in our heart, often the Spirit will begin to convict us generally about that thing, but then over time, he'll get more and more specific. He'll put his finger on things so that he can draw out that bad thing from your heart so that you repent, turn, and get changed. I like to call this treatment the Biff treatment. Now, many of you probably don't know what I mean when I say the Biff treatment, but uh, you will know if I say to you what film it comes from. So, uh, has anyone in here watched Back to the Future? A few nods, yeah? Do you remember there's a, a, a bad character in those films called Biff? And what he would do to get your attention is he'd get you in a headlock and he'd start hitting your head like that, saying, hello. Hello, anyone there? And this is what God does. He gets us in a headlock. And he starts knocking. Come on, guys. Let's talk about this. Let's reason together. Let's get specific about this problem. This is what God does. We're like sheep that go astray, aren't we? We need God to do this. This is why he does this. Because partiality is wrong. And it's very serious. It goes against the purpose of God. It goes against the calling of God. It goes against the lifestyle that God has called us to. And it goes against the name of Jesus. So it's obviously wrong. And this is what he wants to say. Now, in our last section today, in verses 8 through to, I'd say, verse 12, um, James speaks more specifically about the law. And we'll see as we go through that he mentions the law quite a lot. Now, to understand why he's doing this, we have to understand, listen, that these Jewish Christians, they had a very high affinity to the law. They had a very, I would say, close relationship to the law as Jewish Christians. I mean, they were Jews, obviously. They were Jews before they got saved. They were those people that would have lived by the law. They would have seen God's provision for sin in the law, through animal sacrifices, and they would have lived their lives through the law. And many of them, as they got saved, they still would have had quite a high interaction with the law. Because what they wanted to see happen in their lives as Jewish believers was they wanted to see the law being brought forth from their hearts as a functional expression of the righteousness that they'd been given. Not that they followed the law to be righteous, but the, the law came out of their hearts as a bit like a lifestyle. This is what they did. And this is, listen, what all Christians are called to. We are all called to see the law come out of our hearts, to see that functional righteousness expressed in our lives. 
God says that in the Old Testament, that in the New Covenant, he would write the laws of his word on our heart and that the Spirit would bring them out in our lives. As it says in Romans 2, the law is established by faith. And this is what we're all called to. But the problem is that these Jewish Christians unfortunately got into some errors about how they interacted with the law. And that error that they got into, or the errors they got into, it was kind of fueling their sin. And so James obviously sees this as being an issue, and he wants to deal with it. And that's what he's doing in verses 8 to 12. So the first issue is in verses 8 and 9. Let's just read those. It says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, one of the things you have to realize is is the first error that these Jewish Christians got into was they started to use the law as an excuse for their sin. So what they started to do is they started to say things like this. They started to say, hey, I'm just giving attention to this rich person because I'm just loving them as my neighbor, as I would do myself. They started making excuses. They started saying, hey, I just want to see this person get saved. This is why I want to hang around with them. This is why I want to just be with them. And so James says, okay, if you're doing that, if you're really doing that, if you're really fulfilling the royal law, which means if you're really seeing come full from your heart what's written in the law, the law of Moses, if you can say hand on your heart that you're loving that person to see them get saved and not to get their money, then you're doing well. Why does he say that they would be doing well? Well, this command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is one of the two commands that Jesus said summed up the whole law. Jesus said, didn't he, the law is summed up by these two commands, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus fulfilled those laws perfectly in his life. He loved the Father perfectly. He loved all people perfectly. And he calls every single one of his followers to do the same. Why? Because he wants to show that very love to people who don't know him so they can come to him and see him as their savior. And so, of course, if you're doing that in your life as a believer, you are doing well. James says you're doing well if you're really doing that. But he says in verse 9, but if you show partiality, you commit sin. He's saying, look, guys, you're saying that you're loving your neighbor as yourself when you love this rich person, but the fact that you don't give any attention to the poor person that comes into your synagogue shows that you're a liar. It shows that you're a hypocrite. It shows that you're not really loving your neighbor as yourself. Because if you were really doing that, you'd love them both the same. Irrespective of whether one's rich or one's poor, that is what you would do. And because you're not doing that, you've committed sin. And the law convicts you as a transgressor. As it says again in Romans, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But what James is wanting to expose here, brothers and sisters, is the first error that we can make with the law. 
And that is that we can use the law as an excuse for sin. We can be lazy about the law. We can be licentious about the law and about sin. And we can use anything to kind of excuse it or get around it in our lives. I'll give you a good example from my life this week. I'm a relatively busy man, but I'm not as busy as John. And I have a lot of responsibilities. I have a wife, I have sons, I'm a doctor, I'm a pastor. And so it's very easy for me to neglect some of those responsibilities at the expense of others. So it's easy for me, in a week like I've just had, to neglect my wife, to neglect my sons, and to use the law as an excuse for sin. I can say things like, hey Lord, I'm I'm preparing a sermon, I'm doing ministry activities, I'm putting you before everything else. And God says, no, Adam, that's not how it works. You glorify me through submitting yourself to me every day, giving your wife attention, your son's attention, and preparing sermons, and being a doctor, and all these things. How that works, I don't know. But that's what we do. And all of us can do that. We can all fall into the trap of using the law as an excuse for sin. And what happens when we do that? Sin just grows in our heart. We fuel sin, it gets bigger and bigger, and we get harder and harder hearts to God. And James is saying, watch out, don't do that. That is an error. The second error that he deals with is in verses 10 and 11, where he says the following. He says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, James is addressing a different group of people that he's writing to. And we know that because of what he says in verse 10, where he says, for whoever shall keep the whole law. Now that's different to fulfilling the royal law. Fulfilling is where you see something come forth in your life, which is written down. But keeping gives the idea of following something meticulously to be in a right place. And so he's changing his direction here and he's beginning to speak to those Jewish Christians that are falling into the trap, listen, of becoming legalistic, of becoming like the Judaizers. Do you remember the Judaizers said you you, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to get circumcised and you need to follow the law. And, And James is very clear in verse 10. He says, look, for you guys that are falling into that trap, of becoming legalistic Christians, do you know what you're going to find? You're just going to find failure, a big F on the forehead. Because he says there, if you stumble in one point, you're guilty of all. He's saying, look guys, if you replace your standard of righteousness from being Jesus, the only righteous and just one, and you say that your standard of righteousness is you fulfilling the law... As a Christian, do you know what you're going to find? You're going to fail, and because you failed once and you've set your standard as perfection, you've failed the whole thing. 
Again, James agrees with Paul in this, where Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Paul makes it clear here that if you want to try and follow the law, for your righteousness, you're under a curse. And you're under a curse because when you try and follow the law, it exposes your sin and you just get failure after failure after failure continuously. You're under a curse. But the good news is, a few verses on, where Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The law. Hallelujah. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus, when he was at that cross, took away the curse of the law from us. We don't have to try and follow the law anymore to be righteous because you've been given the gift of righteousness if you believe in Jesus. You cannot be any more righteous now than you're going to be in heaven. You can't. You've been given the righteousness of Christ. There's no greater righteousness. That is why religious Christianity, legalistic Christianity, is absolutely pointless. It's pointless. It's naive. It's ignorant. It's not going to do you any good. So please, if you're in here this morning and you've fallen into the trap of being a legalistic Christian, turn from that today. Because if you believe in Jesus, guess what? You're righteous because of Jesus, not because of your own self-effort. No one is justified through the works of the law, as Paul says in Romans. But what happens to legalistic Christians who are unwilling to turn from their religion? Well, what happens is they start to pick and choose what laws they follow. Christians who are legalistic tend to do this. They tend to try and follow certain standards. They fail in those standards. And after a period of time, they realize they can't follow a specific standard, so they just chuck it out the window. And they say, we don't need to actually follow that. This is the real one that we need to follow because they can actually do it. And this is what these Jewish Christians were doing. They were falling into legalism and they were beginning to pick and choose what laws they follow. So because they were struggling with loving this poor man or the poor people that were coming into the synagogue, they just said, well, we don't really need to worry about that. Even though it says in the scriptures, do not murder in your heart, which means to actually think a bad thing about someone else, we're just going to, let's just leave that. We haven't committed adultery, so we're okay. This is what legalistic Christians do. But James makes it very clear. He says, look, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you, commit adul- if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So James is making it clear. You can't pick and choose what laws you're going to follow if you're a legalistic Christian. If you're going to be a legalist, you've got to follow all of them. You can't pick and choose. And if you fail in one, you failed in them all. And this error of legalism was fueling their sin of partiality. So I think we can see, brothers and sisters, from what James is saying here, 
our understanding of how we interact with the law is very, very important as Christians. Because if we have a false view of how we interact with the law, if we're a legalistic Christian or we're a lazy Christian that doesn't really take sin very seriously, we're actually going to fuel sin in our lives. So what's the answer? The answer is what he says in verse 12. He says, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Got some crazy kids upstairs. So, what he says in verse 12 is he says that he wants them to speak and to do, which speaks of having a lifestyle. And he says he wants them to have a lifestyle, to speak and to do things as those who will be judged. But those that will be judged by the law, listen, of liberty, the law of freedom. Not the law of condemnation, which is a legalist's uh, law. Not the law of laziness or not really caring about sin. But the law of liberty. What does that mean? What is the law of, the liberty, law of liberty? Well, listen, the law of liberty is when we allow the Old Testament law to have its proper function in our lives as people who are not saved and also people who are saved. What do I mean by that? Well, let's read a couple of verses. In Romans 3, verse 20, it says, Therefore, I've already mentioned this, by the deeds of the law... No flesh will be justified in his sight, but by the law is the knowledge of sin. And then later on in Galatians 3.24, it says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So in these two verses, we see what the proper function of the law is in someone who is not saved. The function is that someone who comes up against the law will see that they are a sinner. They will see that they can't keep the perfect standard of God. They will see that they're sinners and the law will work to bring them to a place where they see Christ. The law will tutor them to Christ. And so in seeing Christ, we hope that they will believe, put their faith in Jesus and be born again. They'll be forgiven They'll be redeemed. They'll be saved. And that's where this law is the law of liberty because you're given, listen, the freedom from the penalty of sin. Never to be eternally judged in hell if you put your faith in Christ. But it's not just that. The law is a law of liberty in the Christian's life. Because as I've said already today, what happens when we are born again is that the Spirit begins to write the law in our hearts and begins to bring the law out in our lives as a lifestyle through faith. And within that law coming out, God calls us to certain good works and he calls us to be a fruitful people. He calls us to be a holy people. And so you see that the law is a law of liberty in the Christian life Because it leads us to fruitfulness, it leads us to a functional righteousness, and it leads us to be a holy people. This is why the law is a law of liberty. This is what God intended. And so he wants us to live 
a lifestyle where we know we're going to be judged and the judgment he's speaking of there is not the final judgment where God decides whether you go to heaven or hell. It's the judgment seat of Christ when every Christian will stand before Jesus and Jesus will judge the Christian depending on how he's done in his works. And James is saying here, look, I want you to live knowing that you're going to stand before Jesus one day and you're going to be judged by Jesus according to this law of liberty. When Jesus sees you, he's going to say, you're forgiven. You're forgiven of all your sins because you put your faith in me. But Jesus is also going to say, how did you do with those things that I called you to? As the law was working in your life, as the Spirit was bringing these things out, as faith was working, were you faithful? And so you see, when we live that way, when we interact with the law that way, brothers and sisters, when we see it as the law of liberty, we don't get condemned because we know we're forgiven. And we don't get lazy because we know Jesus has called us to good works. That's how the law is a law of freedom. The law of freedom, the law of liberty that Jesus has given enables us to walk in absolute assurance but absolute sobriety at the same time knowing that when we see Jesus, he'll say, you're forgiven, but how did you do in this work? This is what James is saying. This is the proper way. Listen, brothers and sisters, that we as Christians interact with the law. And then we finish finally in verse 13 where he says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now James is being typical to James here in finishing this section. He's been really, really sober about stuff, but really gracious and really loving. He's sober because he says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who's shown mercy. So no mercy, sorry. And the point he's trying to make here is he's trying to say, look guys, if you say you're Christians... If you say you're born again, if you say that you really believe in Jesus, then he is going to work in your heart and he should be producing mercy. And if there's no evidence of mercy in your life, if there's no evidence of you feeling mercy or compassion for someone else, whether they're poor, whether they're rich, then you know what it says there? It says judgment for you is without mercy. What that means is, is it means that you're exposed, that maybe you haven't really believed You're not born again, and if you stay in that state, God, when he sees you on that final judgment day, he will judge you without mercy. And he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. But then he says right at the end, mercy triumphs over judgment. So he goes from soberness to love and compassion. He ends on this note where he wants them to know that, yes, God will judge without mercy one day at the final judgment for people who don't know him. But now, before that day, mercy still triumphs over judgment. There's still a chance, if you don't know Jesus in this place today, to know that Jesus died for you on the cross that he took the punishment for all of your sin, past, present, and future. And in that, God has had mercy on you. He wants to to allow you to have a life where you don't get what you fully deserve, which is death and eternal hell because of your sin. 
He wants to be merciful. For those Christians or those people who say that they are believers in here and they know that they've been prompted by the Spirit this morning, that they show partiality. Listen, mercy still triumphs over judgment. You can still turn, still turn back to the Lord, confess of that sin of partiality and be restored. 